his uh black ring, right? Panky uh, ring. His uh his his black uh championship uh. ring. <laughs> for being the black champion of champions. <laughs> <laughs> and you're saying Cuba's wedding ring is uh. bigger than Pascal's black championship ring. Trying to outdo him. It's a little beef. Interlocking. Okay, we beef. have ring beef. Well, oh, yep. At least it's not cock rings. Rat beef. and welcome i'm your host jason miles and this is revolution podcast sadly thursday we were unable to do our bi-monthly cross stream with matt and david from left reckoning due to technical issues with our streaming platform all that being said everything seems to be running good today and since we're unable to do our thursday news show we brought in pretty much the entire tir crew and have a slew of stories for you today. Real quick, before I bring in the fellas, we have, if you guys didn't know this, new merchandise. The Central Committee merchandise is out. www.thisisrevolutionpodcast.com. You can have Pascal's smiling face on a mug, on a mouse pad, or on a t-shirt. Oh! We coming for you, nigga! Classic Anglo-pessimism. All this is available at www.thisisrevolutionpodcast.com And I must mention the big news next week is the Live show. October 23rd at the Terragram Ballroom. Give them a revolution. And we have a trailer for it that Quinn made that is awesome. And I want you guys to watch this and get ready for the live show. 
Seinfeld's actually problematic, and you suck, and shut the fuck up, and this is a problem, and that's a problem, and this is this, and that, and that, and And then Jordan Peterson comes along and goes, no, actually, you're great, and you should have a government-provided life. Tickets are on sale now wherever you are watching or listening to the show. There's links in the description. There's links in the chat. If you get your tickets early, they're only $25. Let's bring in the news crew since we have so much to cover. Coming in first. He is my homie, my dog. He is the Juan Gonzalez to my Amy Goodman. He is the Pascal Robert. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. What is going on, comrade Jason? Too much. Too much. Man, let me tell you something, man. I'm looking forward to the live stream, the live show. I won't be there. Be I think it's going to be dope. I think you're going to come off well. And um, um, all day yesterday, uh, we went over the plan and the flow of the show. It's also going to be a very interactive show, just to let you guys know. Um, it's not going to be one of those things where you're literally just watching us, um, and we're waiting for applause. It's it's going to be a big huge conversation with everybody in the room so i'm i'm really stoked about the setup the different panels that we have and again the flow of the show you get to see me and kuba will me and kuba be dressed in matching adidas fits i don't know will we be dressed in in both with shirt and ties i don't know you'll have to come and see Speaking of Kuba, he is everybody's favorite middle manager on the Death Star. We don't know who the the fan was that made some amazing fan art of Kuba in his Death Star uni pointing out <laughs> to a chart. It was it was great fan art. Please welcome Deep State Kuba. Hello, everyone. The uh, the chart, of course, had the line going down. But from context, you know that that's good because it's Ewok traffic fatalities. <laughs> I saw that and I was like, I don't know who drew that, but that was hilarious. And also, shout out to J. Andrew World for drawing some really awesome pictures of us uh, for 
some more promotional stuff that we will be doing for the live show, October 23rd, Terry Grand Ballroom. Tickets for us. <laughs> and let's welcome our favorite young British person with extremely luxurious hair. The real revolutionary. Please welcome Thor Rivera. Wow. I'm bringing it back. I'm bringing back Thor Rivera. We haven't Thor in a while. He's actually like a slim down Anglo Fabio. You guys ever been to a live podcast? Uh, no. I, I went to see Chapel once, but it wasn't very good. <laughs> wah, that's, that's, wah. Yeah. Wah, wah. How many of those people actually have experience doing anything live? Touching grass. Uh, like one or two, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I left early. Was uh, it anything like a Wu Tang concert or what? Like I saw Wu Tang before, and I was like, "This is too loud." Yeah, I mean, it, it was like you were you were listening to Chapo, but you had to be surrounded by the other people who listened to Chapo, um, and that didn't. Their people are the good. worst. <laughs> and that didn't improve, improve things at all. It, it, the reverse, really. Uh, we, you know, I will say the live thing we did in New York was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, and, that was yeah. I think this will be good, the, the one you guys are doing, because it's not like the, the Chapel guys are doing it, it's just it was like their normal thing, but they happen to be doing it on stage. But the no. thing you're doing is like bringing all these people together and all this different stuff. Like it's not going to be like, in a good way, it's not going to be like an episode of the show. It's going to be no. unique that people won't be able to get. Very silly. We're definitely going to make fun of Ben's father. Ooh. Okay. Always. Shots. Fire. Always make fun of Ben's dad, teasing him because he's the, the son that failed. Who's Ben's dad? Uh, Mr. Burgess? <laughs> Barack Obama. <laughs> Speaking of the successful child, coming from somewhere in New York City, the headless, faceless voice of reason that gave me a good talking to yesterday, please welcome M. Toussaint. Hello, hello. Anything I said, you deserved. In Tucson also was part of the Jason scolding that was all day yesterday. I mean, it wasn't meant to be a scolding. It's like a firm pep talk. It was a scolding. It's okay. It's okay. I need. I, I don't want that. people out there thinking that you just run in the streets sinning. <laughs> I was attempting to. You're attempting to. I was attempting to on my mission to find every single mom in San Diego. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so you could form a club, right? <laughs> a leftist club? club? To exchange advice on how to raise kids. No, no. Just dating at this stage in your life is like uh, sharing war stories. That's all it is. Just a support group for damaged people. <laughs> The optimism is just flowing. <laughs> so you should advertise it as a support group for damaged people, and <laughs> then you could like date afterwards. Yeah, I just that, that's my profile. Should just say, "Do you want me to listen to you, bitch, about your ex?" And I'll pay for dinner. 
<laughs> you have 1,072 emails. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that's that's how I'm gonna make real money. Fuck this podcast shit. I'm just gonna listen. Emotional gigolo. Somebody, somebody, make the business card. Jason Miles, emotional gigolo. Great listener. Um, no unwanted, unsolicited back rubs. Pays for dinner. <laughs> One drink maximum. Does not open doors. Does not open doors. Oh, that's I actually do. That's so rude. <laughs> you open doors for women? I do. I open doors for everybody, by the way. It's not just like I see a woman. I, I don't push a old man. Are you secretly way. Canadian? <laughs> like if Stefan was walking, like, oh, after you, Stefan, I wouldn't be like, oh, watch out, there's a there's a broad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hella mad, Stefan. I was like, you open doors for women. What do you do? Push them through? Stefan's walking around fucking the UK like ludicrous. Move, bitch. <laughs> Get out the way. <laughs> Just throwing them down. <laughs> Just throwing them down. Better step in that puddle. <laughs> I ain't finna ruin you are this the nice puddle. Vacuum. <laughs> Jeez. I guess I'm the beta in this uh, in this crew, huh? In this sausage party. Oh, for sure. Especially since we've got Kuba here. It's <laughs> Saturday. It's a Kuba Saturday. Was who was it that asked? Was it you, Toussaint, or Jean Bajlan asked us to get Jesse Lee Peterson at the live show? Oh my God, it was not me. <laughs> it was not me. According to David Pakman, he gets handsy. He had a what? video about it. Peterson tried to throw hands. No, not throwing. No, like, hands. like gravity. Yeah. Oh, uh, a station. <laughs> yeah. I don't want my boys in peril. <laughs> you think that would happen? I don't know. I wouldn't. Go, I wouldn't have gone after Pacman. <laughs> but so who knows who he goes after? Wait, who who is this person? Jesse Lee know, Peterson. This is, this is Jesse the Lee road we should go down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we already started the day. It. With you yelling at me for opening doors for dames. <laughs> oh, he's the, he's the like, pastor guy, right? Yes. Yeah, he's the guy that yelled at Ben Burgess. Uh... Beta! <laughs> <laughs> if y'all want to know about it, Pac-Man has a video about it. It's not me making it up. It's literally the title of the video. Um... I was sent this video by a fan of the show, and they wanted Pascal to see this. And they said, can you please pass this on to Pascal, and would you do it live for us? And I said, are you a patron? <laughs> I didn't say that. I thought it. I didn't say it. And uh, I haven't seen this video as well, um, but this video, I guess one of Stefan's countrymen is in it. And uh, 
Do you know Louis Thoreau, Stefan? Yeah, I knew Louis Thoreau. Okay. Um, he did this video with a group of people who... I haven't seen the whole video, but these guys are snazzy dressers. I would be part of this religion uh, if I, too, could dress like a combination of Africa Bambata and Parliament Funkadelic. Oh, that's oh, this is a little bit of man. Shall I go back to my seat? Certainly. Yeah. And if any of you have to go to the bathroom or want to drink water, you know, we have those facilities for you. Come on, Come on in, Adam. Out. Out. Oh, Real talk, Pascal. Yeah. That's how we need to come. That's how, right here, this is how we need to come every day. Like this. It's like this. Because <laughs> this isn't like the cowboy from the McDonald's video. This dude is badass. He flown in. It is traveling all over the world constantly. It's becoming. And originally, saluting Chief Fire Priest Kazak. Mike. Bro. How about shutting your shabra thumb? How about shutting your shabra thumb? History and you'll tell me whether or not they were white or black. Shoot, give me a Where did we start? Okay, um, Beethoven. Black. What? What happened? You can't hear the audio? Double audio. Oh, double audio? Double audio. And people are complaining about it? Get used to the echo, goddammit. It's a slapback effect. Oh, it's only like 30 seconds. It's fine. We can just live with it. Mozart. Black. Cleopatra. She looked black, but she was white. She <laughs> looked black, oh, but listen. she was... <laughs> I mean, she was Greek. Nigga, what? I'm confused. I mean, her family was known for, like, incredible amounts of incest. Also, they were Greek. Um, she was a Ptolemaid. They came in with Alexander and um, yeah, uh, made them adults for girls. generations to stay Greek. Do you yes. Think Louis Thoreau was scared during this interview? No. I don't think the man feels fear. <laughs> he- uh, I mean, he does ballsy, uh, some some very ballsy reporting. Um, like, honestly, I think the white supremacists were much, much scarier. Maybe it's because they were wearing clothes from the 1500s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they hadn't raided the local costume shop. All I hear whenever these dick panda the dudes, I hear, got a rocket, don't stop it. You know, that's my question. It's not the color of your skin that you're being judged by, but the seed of your father. William Shakespeare. Undoubtedly black. Without. Shakespeare was black? Really? Just black. I mean, maybe they made the real Shakespeare, not that, like, um, wannabe imposter in London. In Stratford, sorry. Hold on, Louis Thoreau is from England. These guys are in the United States. So where does he find them? He's in New York. 
like he did a whole his part of his shtick is that he's a nice British boy who was discovering kind of America and explaining it for the people back home. And he one of his first gigs was with uh, Michael Moore on um, his series. I don't know if he did um, documentary, uh, did any of the feature length documentaries with Michael Moore. But um, there was a short lived TV show where um, he was like a really young producer uh, assistant guy for uh, Michael Moore. He just stayed in the U.S. for a while. Uh, I don't think these people are disturbed at all. I disagree wholeheartedly. These are the black Hebrew Israelites. You can see them in any municipality throughout the United States. Their theosophical, uh, quote-unquote, origins are rooted in the belief that black people are one of the original 12 tribes of Israel and that the, quote-unquote, allegation of modern people who are calling themselves, call themselves Jews, Jews are not real Jews. I don't like any of this crap. Uh, I think uh, the notion that black people are desperate to be Jews is rather insulting. Not that there's anything wrong with being a Jew, but why is it so... I'm not into cho- concepts of chosen people. I think it's kind of, uh, I don't know, reactionary, to say the I least. I mean, every nation starts out the same way as an unwanted pregnancy. But... um. I've seen these guys get very, very belligerent mm-hmm. in the way mm-hmm. that they engage with people on the street uh, with their kind of uh, racial chauvinistic narratives of biblical history. And uh, I don't think it's cool at all. The, um, and right, like it's all fun and games until somebody forms a militia. Correct. Dr. I have a Claude, friend of mine, she's like, well, they're just kind of like religious Afro-fascists. And I was like, well, you know, that sounds logical. <laughs> yeah, the, um, there, I think that, is there much of, um, uh, is there much of an appeal to this kind of um, I think it's like very fringe. I think it's very, very fringe. But what about in the Caribbean or Africa? Right? Like I don't even more fringe? That's a very good question, Kuba, whether they exist in the Caribbean or Africa. I think you can find members there, but mm-hmm. I think that they're not as they're not significant. You well, I mean, fringe. Thing. I mean, they have a couple of thousand adherents. So fewer, well, fewer than we have subscribers. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, to, to be fair, oh, there's quite a few. Fringe than they are. <laughs> they're, 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 yeah. There's, there's more than you think. Actually, some of them had hit us up about trying to come on the show. Yeah, we discussed that, and I was like, why? Oh, no, no, no. Say, get them on the show. Get them on the show. But it's just me, Gene, and Stefan. 
Oh that's all I need to go back home and get assassinated. <laughs> I can never go to Berkeley again. I mean, the thing is, though, right? To 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 from a, within a historical context, I think I shared. I think I, I suggested a text to you a while back, Cuba. I know you had a chance to read it. It was on black nationalism and the history of black nationalism. There is an eschatological theological connection between black nationalist political thought and chosen people narrative within it's built into the actual kick that goes back to the 19th century if you read actual textual discourse of early black nationalists this kind of chosen people kind of uh you know mosaic narrative let my people go type stuff even if you listen to certain, you know, black apostolic church music or religious music, this kind of discourse exists. There's scholarship on this. This is not, that part is not totally fringe. But this particular manifestation, the Hebrew Israelite part, is somewhat fringe in terms of the people that they quote unquote uh, adhere to. It, it reminds me a little of some of the Christian um, redemption, national redemption myths of countries like Ireland or Poland. Very much where, so. Very good point. Very good point, Cuba. The book is called The Golden Age of Black Nationalism by Wilson Jeremiah Moses. I refer to it a couple of times. Very good book. Yeah, I, I started reading it, but then I got interrupted. Um, I On your recommendation, I have it, yeah. Oh, right. I got, I got myself a copy. I got it yeah, exactly. God damn just like put right that black nationalism and start helping me pick menu options. I'm like, yes, dear. <laughs> You're like reading the book, and Summer's like, why are you even reading it? It's just Jason. He's the <laughs> <laughs> he's the only one at the show. Like, why are you even going in? All right, on to. More important topics. I'm sure everyone watching is aware of some off-color remarks made by Los Angeles City Council Member Nuri Martinez in regards to Council Member Mike Bonnet's adopted son, who happens to be black. We coming for you, nigga. The remarks were leaked from what Martinez and her colleagues thought was a private strategy session. This is from the L.A. Times. The strategy session was supposed to be a discreet backroom conversation, but as it got underway in a private room at the headquarters of the L.A. County Federation of Labor, someone was recording it. Over the next hour, a device captured the Democratic politicians and the labor leader, all Latino, speaking contemptuously about those they regarded as rivals or impediments. The recordings, including included racist, bigoted, and crude remarks about black, Jewish, Armenian, indigenous, and gay people. Now, since the leak, many of the parties that were present in the meeting have stepped down amid a firestorm of anger over the racially charged language that was used. And to me, there is a moralizing criticism of everyone that was present. This is what racial coalition politics looks and sounds like. What do you think is going on with the Los Angeles? Angeles Black Caucus, Jewish synagogue. They were all trying to redistrict to hold on to a sliver of political power. 
Why was the audio that was a year old leaked that the ballots went out for the November election? It was a play to remove people to get power in a city where the political dynamics are changing, becoming gentrifying class. The meeting in question is about maintaining seats on the council to maintain political power. Some seats were lost to some candidates that represent the gentrifying class, and they're backed by the DSA. These new council members uh, didn't win the Latin vote in their districts. And there is a large Latino constituency that is not on board with slogans like defund the police or even abolitionists. The Los Angeles police force, for example, is 70 percent of color. The defund slogan, especially in the Latin and black community, sounds like an end to good public sector union jobs. So when you hear Nuri Martinez make a comment about someone, Gascon, being with the blacks, was meant as a political affiliation. They were meeting to move their district to the south and to the west as the northeast was jang and they could potentially lose seats to younger, more progressive candidates that represent the interests of the incoming gentrifying class. There is also a player in all of this that is not often discussed, and that player is USC, University of Southern California. They want to take over the entire east side. They want to compete with the Ivy League, but due to astronomical costs of housing in Southern California, people don't want to work there. So how do you fix that? Build your own housing in a transitional neighborhood. This is the real gentrification story Larry Fishburne didn't tell you in Boys in the Hood. Everyone of the pie and all these racial coalitions were having secret backdoor meetings about how to maintain power. What do you guys on screen, think this is all about. I think that you made some really good points about how this is how ethnic patronage politics works out in a municipality where they're competing forces for power, and that the ruling, the actual ruling power central folk, focal point, which is University of Southern California, is trying to play one community against each other. And what happens in those situations is that. People, people get their feelings hurt. The way I see it is that um, this comes out of having um, ethnicity-based machine politics where you appeal to these ideas of ethnic or racial solidarity uh, as the basis of your entire political program. It's not that we're going to change the system. It's that we're going to make sure that the benefits go to people who look like us, who belong to our, our team. It's, mm -hmm. it's very much the conversion of um, racial or ethnic identity into, into team politics. But when you look within um, each of these um, groups and the way that they're politically mobilized, you've got, it's basically the Democratic Party in um, a microcosm, you have elites from within the group that are deciding mm -hmm. policy, uh, winning elections, running elections, um, and uh, then making deals with their com um, counterparts from other groups, as well as big outside uh, forces like USC or um, you know even the state and federal government. While below that, you you have some a lot of people who at best just get some kind of passive benefit from having a city that is 
sort of run by people who look like them, which that can be important, but it's not the broad-based uh, empowerment or the redistribution of, um, of wealth to those who need it. No, these are all people trying to play, you know, power politics. I think uh, the sad part about the whole story has been kind of the spectacle and everyone coming out, you know, saying their sad story about how affected they were about the comments that were made, which if you really listen to the comments are kind of more of an indictment on Mike Bonin than they are uh, about the kid. I mean, I've definitely heard worse. Uh as a, I posted the Eddie Murphy skit he did in the 80s when Jesse Jackson got caught calling. Was it Brooklyn, Pascal? Jesse Jackson called. Down New York City. City. You call all of New York City? Yep. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was just Brooklyn. He called all of New York? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> was he caught on tape saying that? I don't remember. Wait, did he say Town or Greater Town? <laughs> Because it's two different maps. <laughs> it's almost like people forgot all about that. Like I've never seen anyone ever bring up the Jesse Jackson Jaime Town thing. Oh, but one other thing that I wanted to pick up on from what you were saying, um, when you talk about the interests of the gentrifying class, um, one of the particular characteristics of gentrifiers is they don't have deep roots in the city. They don't belong to one of the uh, one of the teams. Usually, often they're people from outside who are moving in for job opportunities, uh, people moving back from the suburbs, that kind of thing. Uh, so they're outside of the system. They don't really understand its logic, and they haven't they haven't yet absorbed the material side of um, of civic governance because they do very well in the market. Like, so often you have um, gentrifiers be either libertarians or um, uh, left liberals, some socialists. <clears throat> and um, they have political positions that have been formed intellectually through their educational experience, which may or may not correspond at all to uh, the civic reality of the, the place that they're living in. So often the people who get elected on these gentrification waves have no idea what they're doing. They can't actually run the city because they haven't been preparing for it. Instead, they've arrived into politics through college debate clubs and um, the other kind of campus um, mobilization that produces um, protest movements in university campuses that then carry over when people graduate. This, uh, I'm, I'm putting this comment on the screen because this kind of encapsulates everything that literally just happened in LA. Literally. That's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happened. Like, I don't know why you did. That's, that's what goes on literally in every city. This is what we're yeah. doing. That's what got us here. <laughs> That's literally what happened. Like, that's why black politics doesn't work. <laughs> Is it because it's a broker's politics where you have people who are telling you that you're black and you think like they think like you when they're looking out for their best interests? 
It's a con game. So to to t- put it back to the L.A. context, there was a, a black council member that actually, uh, I think the USC district was part of his district, and um, he got caught up in a scandal literally a year ago today where he had paid, it was $100,000 to get his kid uh, a degree and a professorship at USC. And the USC dean had to step down at the time. You can still do that? Yeah. I mean, why do you think it doesn't happen? It's a side door. Only so many people have money to buy a building, right? USC also gave Karen Bass an honorary master's. Ooh. Yeah, but like... Wondering whatever is you can just pound them out like candies. A professorship, that's real shit. Yeah, but the honorary masters, you know, also had uh, a lot to do with you know, their build out of a new medical corridor as well. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting story, and we'll see how people want to cover it. But you, you know, the racial aspect is an emotional aspect that people like to, to, to click on that. Because we can all comment on that without having to know anything about the situation in Los Angeles. Moving on. Pascal, you wanted to talk about Haiti. Actually, before we move on, Toussaint, do you have anything to say on this? Where's Toussaint? She in the bathroom? Uh, hello? Yeah. Hi. Okay, here we are. <laughs> Uh, since it's so central to the discussion, I just want to read the comment that we're responding to. Mm-hmm. Um, black people need to start fighting for its own interests before any kind of solidarity. So, yeah, that's what got us into this situation in California. That's what we said. Yes. Well, but the for the audio listeners, the- they don't know the comment. Thank you. And I mean, a couple of interesting things just out of that comment. One, um, black people singular, it's right. Yeah. The, yeah, that may just be. Too. And the other is um, if you're, what's the, is it like 12% of California population is black? Um, it's a pretty small number. In LA, it's dwindling too, it's, it's getting much, much smaller. The black so, so are is the proposal that um, you turn yourself into an elite minority and all the country clubs now belong to us um, and we're going to be extracting from everybody else if so I mean good luck right like that's that's gonna be hard to hard that's a tough tough uh, road to plow um, but if it's uh, a matter of, well, we have to look after our own interests, then how much will it take, right? Like, can the other, can like the whites, the Jews, and the Armenians pitch in and like cover it, right? <laughs> the, um, how many, how many jobs, how much symbolism, right? Like, name your price. Because if we're talking pure interests, that's what it comes down to. You're just haggling over price. Who who are the who are the black people that you're talking about? The black political class, the congressional well, black caucus. I, I think there's just you, you. I mean, Pascal, you know how this works, right? It's it's the conflation of um, the entire group into one single-headed 
um, body. And of course, it ends up empowering the black political class, which negotiates a price and then keeps it all for itself. I mean, that, that the, the, the problem that people really are failing to understand here is that black politics is in America is not to designed to represent the interests of poor and working class black people. It is a brokerage politics of elites, just like any other politics in America. Absolutely. The problem is, is that the charade of racial kinship is what allows black people to believe that there's somebody actually out there defending their interests. Like, oh, you know, the look at the, I, I mean, the greatest possible example is, of course, Obama, who um, takes full advantage of the symbolic benefit of um, solidarity politics, as well as tapping into um, the power of white liberal, um, you know, feel good, uh, multiculturalism or diversity, um, politics, but really what does he do? He saves the banks and gives and turns, um, what's supposed to be universal healthcare into a bonanza for insurers. He was supposed to save the black banks. Google. <laughs> Dude. You're right. You're right. The, there was like the missing part of the memo where if you got bailout money, you were supposed to sign everything over to the black Israelites. <laughs> Someone asked me to define a term for the brokerage politics. What I mean by brokerage politics is that black politics is a kind of brokerage cap politics. It's a captured politics. You have racial people. coalition politics. It's not just black people. It's racial it's not, coalition. Right, that's politics. a very good point. Racial coalition politics particularly, but when I mean brokerage, why is there someone like an Al Sharpton acting like a broker for the interests of black people when he's not? No one chooses him. No one picks him. He represents no one, yet he has all of this capacity to negotiate and broker interests for people that no one chose to represent. How, what is the history that allows this kind of tradition to exist in black politics? Why is there a black leader when there's no Hispanic leader? Who's the Jewish leader? Who's the Italian American leader? Why has there always well, been a need to have a black leader for over a hundred years? I mean, there's always a leader, right? That's what those people were all meeting about. That was that was part of what I actually found out was everyone was meeting around the same time when it came to the redistricting. The, there was the Jewish community that was trying to redistrict to have an entire voting I block. I totally agree with you. And I think that I, I agree that I also agree with you that these phenomenon exist in lesser capacities in different ethnic groups as well. But what has happened is that they've been expended over time, over 100 years history, and perfected in black spaces and replicated in other communities. And no one ever challenged, why do we have these things? The importance, I think that the importance of the black leader largely has to do with the fact that whites want to have somebody to sign an armistice with, right? Yes. Um, and indigenous people too. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And honestly, what a headache it was with the indigenous people because there's like so many of them. Did you know that there's more than one kind of Indian? Um, That's why we all deal with Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> the guy we make deals with. For all of them. For all of them. Tribes. tribes. That's what he tells us, right? Um, and we believe him because, you know. Here's a question I'd like to ask. 
-hmm. If you realize that you're part of a constituent, you're part in a country where 14% of the population is black, at some point, you're going to have to interface with people who don't look like you to get your demands. At some point, either it's going to be the ruling class or it's going to be at the grassroots level. Doesn't it make sense to get your ducks in a row at the grassroots level so that you have the muscle numerically so that when you get to the ruling class, you have more efficacy and your capacity to get your demands met? Or are you saying that you should basically go it alone when eventually you're going to have to try to confront someone to get what you want anyway? And when you get there, you have nobody but yourself to negotiate with them. Is that what you're arguing is the strategy? I think that's what people think they're doing. They think they're getting their ethnic ducks in a row or racial ducks in a row before dealing with um, some outside community. But we've been resistant to getting in a row, haven't we? <laughs> Apparently Jay-Z and, and Beyonce don't have my best interests at heart. <laughs> but she did the whole Black Power thing at the Super Bowl. Well, that's um, one reason why um, having a single leader is so attractive to the state apparatus um, is that it becomes, it compensates for deficiencies in your own system of administration rather than trying to reach out to the individuals within the group and bring them on board with like a better deal for everyone, you just have one person that you need to convince and then it becomes their problem to get, um, you know, their people to do what you want. Also, another thing I'd like to point out is that some of these council members actually do come from um, activism. They do come from poor and working class backgrounds. Nuri Martinez actually does come from the, the lower class. Uh, Gil Cedillo actually uh, was a communist when he was young, uh, made his bones in the labor movement as an organizer, um, actually passed the <clears throat> first Dream Act. I um, mean, he was writing that legislation when uh, Bush was in office as president and when Schwarzenegger was governor of California and he was on the state assembly. Um, he also got the driver's license bill that allowed uh, undocumented uh, people to get uh, driver's licenses. So you, know, you do have to g- make some sort of return on investment when, when these people bring votes. There's a reason why they had these seats for, for so long. And we forget also in the context, and I haven't read anything that has mentioned this, um, there was some really horrible legislation in the 90s, and I don't even think there was a, a Latin... A member on the city council not that long ago. So again, these are people trying, and I'm not saying that that justifies everything, just putting it into some sort of perspective. These are people literally trying, everyone is trying to hold on to some sort of power. And everyone has come up with racial coalition politics because that's how, as Kuba was saying, the democratic machine and even the GOP machine works. Can you deliver votes? of a constituency that's what people care about and the the litmus test for the left electorally speaking if it's going to be electorally relevant then you have to deliver votes um on an ideological basis without appeals to 
a particular racial or ethnic identities, um, at least at the level of interface with the system. Um, you can embed things like, um, uh, I, I don't want to say anti-racism, but uh, police reform or um, housing issues, things that disproportionately affect people of color within your program. But when you get to negotiating, it can't be like, well, houses for black people, trailers for Latinos, and then <laughs> everybody else gets a tent. It's... <laughs> Another thing that also is getting uh, downplayed too, which was which was a big part of these conversations, there were many, there wasn't just the one that was recorded, was the fact that you have a new class of people coming in that is very antithetical to law enforcement. And law enforcement, again, in a city that in 1965, those cops were pretty much all white. And they were like Gestapo. There's a reason why that city burned in 65. By 91, they look a little different. By 2022, it's a majority of people of color, black and majority Latino, is on the LAPD. And I, I don't know the exact makeup of the sheriff's department, but it's pretty similar. Can and I the sheriff's add? department caught up in a scandal, real quick, MT, caught up mm -hmm. in a scandal with gangs inside the sheriff's department. These same progressives were fighting for the sheriff that was covering up the, the, the gangs. This is also another reason why the left needs to capture some police departments. Because mm -hmm. it turns out if you want an endorsement from the DSA, rather than having the right ideological program, you could just be a head-busting, shit-kicking sheriff who says, uh, yeah, yeah, progressive, sign me up. <laughs> Stefan, what say you coming from across the pond? Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I wasn't kind of being shy. I just didn't necessarily have much to say. I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know. It just seems like this new kind of news comes out of America a lot. And I guess, yeah, as you guys have explained, it's kind of inevitable due to the, the kind of pseudo party system that the U.S. has, where you don't actually have kind of political parties in a real sense. Well, I mean, I guess the Greens and Libertarians are a bit close to real uh, political parties, but the Republicans and the Democrats aren't. And you have lots of areas in America which are either kind of red or blue. And so kind of the concern in California is not kind of keeping the Republicans out, apart from the very few kind of marginal borders restricts, but the concern is kind of intra-competition between groups of Democrats. And there, even kind of the, the, the possible like ground is compressed even more, which kind of encourages uh, politics on kind of a non-political basis on, on, a, on kind of a racial basis or whatever, you know. Um, I wanted to add, uh, speaking of holding on to power, as you said, Jason, Nuri, I believe that's her name, she resigned but did not quit. I think she quit now. I think she's finally gone now. Because she had to, because that resignation was like such a Everybody, Gil Cedillo actually lost the race, uh, his race, so he was going to be gone anyway, and he still stepped down. 
Um, and even within getting people to step down, um, there's political games to be played to make sure people step down and you were the person to make sure they step down because you're trying to keep your power as well because no one wants to be involved um, to, to, to the shri- you, they don't want to eat some of the shrapnel from your this this huge political grenade that just got dropped is there any word as to how this is going to affect Karen Bass Karen Bass most likely is going to win uh, one of the members on the council actually was uh, endorsing Caruso and that also had to do with, you know, other patronage uh, things that happened. Uh, Caruso helped out with uh, a big uh, policy that this person was trying to get done back in the day. So uh, Caruso is still going to be a billionaire, even if he loses the mayoral race. So we have to remember that. He's, he's still going to be a billionaire. So Karen Bass will most likely win. But what will she be walking into? And I think that's the better question. You're walking into a city now that is publicly on display as dysfunctional. Um, The racial problems in Los Angeles are real. There is real beef between black people and the Latino population. Some of that has to do with prison culture. Some of that has to do with, you know, post the Bracero program. But, you know, Nuri's statement should be kind of an indictment on the city in general, on the folly of racial coalition politics in general. But instead, it's clickbait um, for our souls so we can all moralize, you know, the bad words that were said. And then nothing changes. Clickbait for our souls. Yeah. Clickbait for That's our heavy. souls. Mm-hmm. Sing it, Pascal. <laughs> <laughs> nice song, man. I remember Chicken Soup for the Soul, those books that you could get in the 90s. It yeah. really feels like with, um, with like millennial nostalgia, Clickbait mm-hmm. for the Soul, is anybody doing that yet? Because like it's that's a moneymaker. Look, dude, clickbait for the soul is just racism. (laughs) Oh, dude, this guy got beat up by the police. Mm. Feels so much better. I retweeted it. (laughs) Don't rub your chest like that again. Mm. (laughs) Oh, he's squeezing too. For for the for the listeners on the audio only, he's not rubbing his chest. He's like squeezing it and and like doing doing like the noises with his mouth. That's the that's the clickbait for the soul. He was like, mm. we're doing like closed captioning for like the. the <laughs> if, if she would have said the N word, they would have been like, ah. <laughs> Say it again, Mary. <laughs> Usually you have to watch a cooking show to see somebody moaning on screen <laughs> or something else. But here we are. This is here we are just watching, watching, watching people say the wrong thing. Uh, yeah, I, I'm adding that to your emotional gigolo profile. I was trying to help racial uh, solidarity in Southern California yesterday. No one was taking the bait. 
It always rains in Northern California. I was like, hey. Wouldn't say sorry? But then they said, We're coming for you, nigga! And I left. I laughed all the <laughs> Pascal, what's going on in Haiti? <laughs> uh, I wish good things. Well, as you guys may or may not know, last year there was a presidential assassination in Haiti that caused a, rep- uh, a replacement of a government that was put in power by the core group in the United States with a guy who was basically the prime minister named Ariel Henry. Because of the instability in the country, there was a rise of gangland activity in the country. Who the Gangs controlled the municipalities all over the country in the city areas and the cityscapes. And it's very hard for the government to be able to actually maintain coordinated control. It's become so desperate that now there's a cholera outbreak in the country at the moment. And the federal, the government of Haiti is beseeching the United States to send a deployment, military or otherwise, to come and help them control the country. The instability is, is quite treacherous. But many Haitians believe that the notion that after the long history of U.S. occupation forces coming to the United States with the first U.S. occupation in 1915 and also with the minutia U.N. occupation that happened in the later 20th and early 21st century, that the notion of having the U.S. or anyone in the West or from the core group ally of Western nations come and occupy Haiti is a disaster being, being in consideration that these occupations have never really done anything to resolve the long-lasting problems of the Haitian people, which are rooted in the inability of a political force of Haitians to create a coalition that is willing enough to create sovereignty for the Haitian people and have the government that's able to address the needs of those folks. As we were reported in CNN, the U.S. is the U.S. deploying delegation to Haiti among security and humanitarian crisis. The Biden administration dispatched a high-level delegation to Port-au-Prince Wednesday following the Haitian Prime Minister and U.N. Secretary General's request for assistance to address the nation's humanitarian and security crisis. A senior administration official said that the U.S. officials, led by Assistant Secretary of State Western Hemisphere Affairs Brian Nichols, would discuss the request put forward by the Prime Minister Ariel Henry. Many people in the Haitian community believe that Ariel Henry may have been a co-conspirator in the assassination of of the Jovenel Moise former president that died last year. So this is how bad and circular the effects have gotten politically in Haiti. I only last week for interventional support for the react for the nations grappling with cholera outbreak shortages of food and fuel and widespread protests and unchecked gang violence. So what is more ironic here is that we have a government administration in Haiti that was partly largely put in place by the United States in the form of Ariel Henry, many people who believe that he is responsible partially for the assassination of Moise. He has no credibility now without taking up any kind of actual supposition from the overall uh, interests of the Haitian people. He's demanding the same United States, United States government come in with some type of force to try to actually neutralize the capacity of the Haitian people to have any kind of sovereignty. This is a disaster waiting to happen, and I don't see much positive coming from it. MT, did you want to add something to that? 
Um, when I was a kid, I would talk to my dad about the news, not just Haiti. And he told me, no matter what happens in the country, the people prefer to solve it themselves. Nobody really welcomes, you know, outsiders to fix their problems. And so I completely understand um, not wanting, especially the U.S., to come in and help. Do you feel better about the U.N. coming in to help? They're also terrible, no. right? No, particularly considering the role of Manusta in bringing cholera, rape, and all kinds of other horrible things to you know the Haitian community in the country. It's a listen. It's a conundrum, MT. It's a serious conundrum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The uh, so Haiti has all the hallmarks of a, of a failed state. I don't even know if it would be appropriate to call it a failed state so much as um, a state which never fully cohered into a durable institutional form. Uh, I think the Duvaliers, I mean, what, say what you will about their policies and their politics and their methods, but they were capable of establishing order over most of the country. But that may have been the last time that uh, you had uh, and political institutions that were able to do that. And here, I think the whole, we need a black king to have, in order to have somebody that, that we can negotiate with, really comes into play with uh, the way that outside uh, forces, whether the United States or the UN, uh, deal with Haiti. They don't understand the country. They're, they don't want to be there long term and actually develop local state institutions themselves. Um, so you find somebody in the elite who says the right things, who is palatable, and you're like, okay, the internal, you can be prime minister, but you have to take, you have to figure out the internal components yourself. That's a very dicey proposition when much of the Haitian elite doesn't have strong power bases uh, locally. Uh, many of them come from the diaspora. Um, a, li a little like Hamid Karzai, right? They have their uh, place in the international political order uh, comes from their connections abroad, but that doesn't reflect any underlying um, authority over their own society. And I don't know how you, how leaders with that kind of um, authority can emerge under these conditions where um, Haiti is never allowed to, to fully go and have an internal conflict that would clarify which, which forces, which individuals actually can mobilize um, enough, frankly, violence to establish their order over the country. I mean, you could end up with uh, North Korea, you could end up with Albania, a functional but very bizarre and inhumane states, or there could be uh, a very positive indigenous leadership that becomes more and more capable. But with what these constant external interventions do is they prevent that kind of local, local violence and conflict that might create effective um, leaders. It always gets forced out. 
what you're saying is that the necessary for a full actual political purge gets gets cut off because there's an intervention that stops it from happening. Yeah, and nobody wins um, because the intervention freezes uh, conflicts. People have to go go back inside without uh, establishing um, who really has the the bones, the um, the horses to call the shots. Well, what and, I would say. I would say, Kuba, uh, is that in terms of Haiti being a failed state, I think Haiti is a state, is an example of a state that was failed more so than a state that is a failed state. Because there's never been a moment since the rise of Duaye where the country, even including the rise of Duaye, where the country's been able to have a full sovereignty to address the needs and its capacity for itself without U.S. intervention. Yeah, and uh, I think that that's. Um... I, I mean failed state just as a descriptive category, no judgment. The position of Haiti as being too far away from the United States to become, to, to annex, um, but too close to ever actually have real sovereignty leaves it in this, uh, and I think that this is a, a good um, resonance with what goes on in the Russian um, hinterland, the Russian near abroad. It, if you can't swallow Georgia, if you can't swallow Ukraine, then the next best thing is keeping it in this liminal space where uh, no local government can cohere that could threaten your interests and push back. Um, and I think one main difference between American and Russian foreign policy is that the Russians have clarity as to what they're doing, while um, many parts of the American uh, foreign policy leadership buy into the human rights developmental framework um, and then are shocked that they never seem to achieve their goals. Hmm. Stefan, you want to add something to that? No, not really. <laughs> Pascal? Are you, are you expecting another assassination? For this MG. Yeah, I wanted to ask, there hasn't been an election, has there? There hasn't been an election, and I don't think that Ali is. I think that they would remove him before they assassinate him. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think that the catastrophe of what happened to the country after the assassination was so extreme that allowing that to happen again would is is too is, is not palatable to the governing forces that exist on the ground. It's been six years since the last election. Say again? It's been six years since the last election. Six years, well, we, that's, yes, that's correct. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it just kind of, it makes it crazy that, you know, the US is meant to be intervening in favor of the current government to preserve democracy. It's like, there's none of that at all. Like it's an unelected leader, which in a country which hasn't gone for six years, who, as you said, like presumably killed the actual democratically elected leader. Yeah. Uh, moving on. Ah. Stefan. Hmm? What were you going to talk about today? I was going to talk about China. China. Ooh. Look, first of all. Cuba's face got real serious. He doesn't appreciate motherfuckers talking about China out of pocket. So you better watch yourself, Stefan. And Cuba's talking about Russia, which is why 
What's what's going on in China? So in a move that was like not really reported at the time, and I include myself in not noticing it, but seems really important. Um, last week, the U.S. kind of took decisive action, uh, much more than it has before, to kind of inhibit the the ability of the Chinese capital and Chinese state to buy U.S. microchips, um, like computer stuff, and also kind of precursors to these microchips. This move wasn't really noticed at the time when it happened eight days ago, um, but has slowly come into the news since then. Because a couple of days ago, um, leading all the leading uh, chip manufacturers and suppliers have suspended sales and services in China. Um, the new restrictions ban the export to China of U.S. semiconductor equipment that can't be provided by foreign competitors. So basically, if it's anything that the U.S. is leading on, then it can't be sent to China. And obviously, the U.S. remains in a leading position on microchips. And this, this is what the whole conflict is about. China is trying to gain independence and, and leadership in global microchip production, while the U.S. is obviously taking action to preserve their position. And Trump did various kinds of stupid bullshit, which didn't achieve anything, as he often did to try and ensure this, while our new president, Doc Brandon, has actually successfully done something. Um, it imposes a license requirement for <clears throat> export of US tools mm -hmm. to produce microchips. Um, and it holds that all U US employees, green card holders and foreign nationals who live in the US are basically prohibited from working in Chinese microchips and basically if you want to stay in China uh, working for a Chinese microchip uh, company as an American citizen, you basically have to resign your citizenship or you'll be in violation of sanctions. Um, oh, wow. So wow. There's, there's exceptions to this. Uh, there's lots of like lead in delays and stuff. So like Samsung and the other Korean one have like a year before this applies. Um, but because the US is still kind of hegemonic uh, globally, economically, this will over the next year or so kind of, if it's not kind of overturned, uh, gradually force China out of the global microchip industry and into an independent one. And so obviously kind of the point of this is to inhibit China, but it's already having kind of knock on effects in the global chip industry because obviously they sell like one third of their stuff to China. And so kind of Biden's taking a lot of this away, like if it's today or in a year, so they have to plan for this, they're kind of, it's hard times for them anyway. Um, and obviously, if you want to get into it, uh, one of the main reasons that kind of it was said that China wouldn't take any action towards Taiwan or, or, or anything like this is they feared being pushed out of the US chip system, the microchip system, which is something they currently can't uh, provide for themselves. But if this move is taken by the US before anything happens in Taiwan. It basically pushes China out of the system before this has happened. Uh, makes it easier for China, makes it less risky for China, uh, less costly for China, and takes kind of a weapon out of the arsenal uh, of the US in regards to Taiwan. Pascal, do you want to add something? So, what does this really mean in terms of the, the real politics of these two countries? That 
the United States is willing to go. The Biden administration, I mean, as much as people want to say about Joe Biden, Joe Biden is trying to do some serious flex in terms of foreign policy. Yeah. He, he, I mean, he's, uh, you know, the, the, the situation with the Russians has definitely put them in a bit of a quagmire. Now he's trying to flex against Chinese uh, uh, chip manufacturing. Does this does this demonstrate a certain willingness to exude strength more than people give him credit for? Cuba, do you want to answer that question? If I may, I think that um, the foreign policy look is actually it may not be even the primary story here. Uh, the United States um, says that it doesn't do industrial policy because it believes in markets and companies can decide what they're going to produce and the, the government officially, the state officially is, is neutral. And that has severely hamstrung it against competitors from other advanced countries, uh, competitors from uh, developing nations that are um, that are taking off, places like East Asia, China most of all. And that attitude has also enabled the offshoring of many industries where the United States was once dominant. You can't do anything through state policy about that unless you can couch it as a security threat. By making it a security issue, then you justify interventions that are largely on the economic side. So I see this move as an attempt, and it's very much shutting the barn door after the horse is bolted, because so much of the semiconductor technology has already been transferred to East Asia, Taiwan most of all, but once in Taiwan, often... Um, it gets transferred into mainland China's Taiwanese companies um, incorporate mainland labor, mainland producers into their supply chain. Um, so this is an attempt to try to break off from the international supply chains related to um, high technology and incubate an America-only sector that would be um, impenetrable to uh, Chinese commercial or um, state espionage. Now, will it succeed? I don't know. It'll take a while before we even know if it if it has any possibility of uh, of working out. Chinese and East Asian manufacturers and suppliers are central are essential to the market right now, and the um, individual companies and individual tech executives would much rather take the bag and deal with China than try to um, try to work with American resources and serve a much smaller, much more limited market. Um, not only that, but consider the talent that goes into um, chip design, chip manufacturing, chip production. Uh, the human capital. The United States hates educating its working class. It hates creating new technical cadres. It would much rather import them. But that all becomes problematic if you want this siloed IT industry that um, isn't subject to um, 
penetration or um, tech transfer. And I think that the security grounds are um, going to be uh, the basis for incubating um, what will potentially become um, a robust, profitable, and patronage, um, mm-hmm. you know, ready, um, coddled sector within the United States. Stefan, did you want to add something before we go? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think Cooper's right that this is kind of like a, a, a move towards kind of guaranteeing the U.S. economy, and which also could have a, a, a certainly a negative impact on the U.S. economy. Um, but I think it's just a very interesting move in the sense that it's, I think, the first time that the U.S. has kind of changed from saying, like, China's the devil, blah, 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 like genocide, <laughs> but then still just acting completely normally with them in terms of capital markets and, and exchange of commodities and so on. It's the first time I think that the U.S. has seriously kind of shown, like, no, we we could actually just angle from China. We could actually do something like we're not going to just let you grow up and become the next superpower. We are going to do something about it. And we're going to do something which isn't just like waiting and waiting and waiting and then like nuking you. We can do kind of stuff which is not hard, which is not involving carrier fleets, which will kind of try and we're going to try and maintain our position as a superpower and we're going to try and stop you. We recognize the threat and we're actually going to try and do something, you know. And the the whole sanctions approach, uh, one thing that the United States is good at as a state is forcing costs onto other people. They love cutting off access to markets. They love going after assets. They they love fucking blowing with other people's shit. Blowing up pipelines, precisely. What the United States as a state is not good at is developing its own capabilities. And I think that's where things will, um, that's the real test. Will the U.S. actually be able to uh, offset the disruption to its own supply that comes with disengaging from East Asia? Um, And my guess is, like, unless there's some real deep state commitment to this project, which there could be, then um, it can't survive two changes of administration. Well, I mean, I think I've already seen stuff that they've already tried, uh, like, watering it down. Because kind of they issued this, and it, it didn't come to any press. And I think, like, obviously, if the U.S. wants something to become headline news, it, it would have. And so it wasn't kind of intended as their, like, kind of grand move against China. It's just kind of something that they were trying out. And now it's kind of coming to the news because these chip manufacturers are saying, you've just taken away, we've looked, we've read this, we spent a week reading this, and we're like, you've just taken away 30% of our business. And now kind of it's like, oh, oh dear, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if it'll even last to the end of the year, but I think it is interesting in, in kind of showing that they might have a go, you know? Tucson, do you want to add something? No, I just, um, <clears throat> you don't sanction the ones you love. <laughs> it's an interesting development 
Yeah. No, I, it's it's something I'm going to continue to watch. It, it was very low key and, and not making a, a lot of big uh, news. And you spent it. you spent some time in China's manufacturing sector as uh, as uh, some oppressed slave labor, right? I did. I did. <laughs> so. It could have been a lot worse, but uh, yeah. We won't get into the great sock fiasco of 2015. No, we won't. Oh my God, you nailed the year. Okay. <laughs> Is there a page for it? What'd you say? Is there a Wikipedia page for it? 2015. Better not be. Uh, Let's move on. Speaking of sock fiascos. <laughs> deep state fashion industry, so <laughs> the deep state fashion industry. Deep state Cuba, who is blessing us with his presence on a Saturday. Uh Feel special. Good. You should. You should. You are special. In the geisha room, as Jean Bajlan named it earlier, which is pretty funny. Hey, every room I'm in is the geisha room. Oh. Geisha McDonald's. Hmm. <laughs> You're in a booth. <laughs> Check, please. Um, <laughs> Cuba, what are you here to talk about today? The, uh, I wanted to give a quick update as to the situation in the Ukraine-Russia war. Um, we alluded to some of the big developments, the destruction of the Nord Gas and Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the um, mobilization, the partial mobilization of uh, the general population, uh, general male population of Russia. Um, partial means that people with combat experience, um, veterans, and specifically uh, a certain specialized um, uh, specialized skill sets. People with uh, specialized skill sets are being called up for uh, military service. It will take a while to get them organized, trained, and prepared. But this has all the hallmarks of um, setting the stage for another major counteroffensive by Russia, uh, probably in a couple months' time. And there's also the implicit threat of um, Russian use of nuclear weapons. And in his latest, most belligerent speech yet, where uh, he announced the annexation of uh, four more oblasts uh, of Ukraine, uh, Putin described the war, um, and he's been doing this for a while, but this has been the most high-profile case, as a conflict with the West in general, as a civilizational struggle. Uh, the real mirror image of, um, of American Cold War uh, rhetoric about the Soviet Union, it amounts to basically, no, you are evil empire with your gays and drag queen story hour. <laughs> We are virtuous orcs of Mordor. We take down Gandalf youth. Um, the yeah. Also with that the new Amazon Lord of the Rings series, um, I got back into um, Rus orc uh, pop culture. Um, there's a 
there's a novel where Stalin is sent to, uh, he dies in our timeline and is reborn in uh, Mordor in order to um, help the forces there vanquish the, the evil um, elf-human alliance. Um, but um, the uh, putting aside all the aesthetic awesomeness of uh, the Russian appropriation of the Lord of the Rings. The concern is that by treating this as a conflict between nuclear armed blocks, and especially following um, the destruction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which Russia is blaming on the United States and very much seems like it was a Western operation, that opens up the possibility that Russian retaliation will be outside of Ukraine and that um, if the United States, the West, NATO continues to um, find other forms of you know, horizontal escalation to broaden um, their, uh, their war fighting against Russia, then the use of uh, nuclear weapons is on the table. Um, what I've, what's most plausible is the idea of um, something smaller than Hiroshima being um, exploded as more or less a, a demonstration um, in order to try to cow Ukrainians into making some kind of uh, peace concessions lest they um, enter into a an actual atomic uh, war with uh, without any nuclear weapons of their own. Now that we're already in unprecedented ground here with this conflict, um, that move by Russia um, would have uh, ramifications that um, are impossible to predict. Incidentally. Um, not to put it entirely on Russia, right? The destruction of Nord Stream 2, that was a similar move by the West, clear escalation, which gets us to this unprecedented position and makes containing the conflict um, much more difficult. Now, I don't think that um, outside parties can afford to ignore it and just treat it like the troubles in Northern Ireland, uh, a sideshow. Um, it, the, the metastasis into the center of European life is already taking place. And winter is coming. It always does. This, this is, this, this is, this is depressing, man. Well, one of the things that I can say is that number one is that where I disagree with some of my friends and comrades is that. I don't look, I am not one who says that simply because Putin opposes America and America bad, Putin good. I, that, 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 math, that math doesn't work for me particularly. What Putin offers on the global stage is not some kind of ideological salve from the worst of the actions of the West the IMF and the World Bank. 
He just offers a different option. Now, we have, there's no reason to absolutely be assured that that option is better in any way than we've seen before, except simply knowing that it's not the West. Now, if we want to talk about what China has demonstrated to us in terms of the worst, the West, if we want to talk about the BRICS, we can have that conversation. But we don't have any absolute evidence per se that what the project that Putin is offering is divorced from some of the more concerning abuses that we witness within his sphere of influence. I understand the history of the BRICS offered a, a, some said a, a bit of a light and that was in opposition to what was going on with the NATO alliance. I was not one of those that was that particularly impressed with what the BRICS had to offer. I mean, I think that, you know, it was an interesting constellation of potential power. But at the same time, all of these countries are all working within the sphere of capitalism. There's one capitalist world economy, and everybody was integrated into it following the end of the, the Cold War. The sole exception, possibly North Korea. Um, even breakaway republics, uh, even Puntland and Somaliland um, at this point are penetrated uh, by the market. If maybe not the, the major international corporations, but... Um, there's a kind of pioneer capitalism of uh, smaller operators um, that uh, find ways of making money out of every environment on the planet. And Putin, Putin's Russia, just like uh, the PRC, presents itself as an alternative, but what it really means is let's headquarters capitalism, at least for Eurasia, here and not there. Let's move I mean, the HQ. At best, at best, you might get better terms for your loans for a while. Okay, great. But we're still dealing with blocks of capital here, man. Yeah, the and the question and the thing is too that capitalism um, at the beginning of a trade relationship it can all be you know will you kind will you kindly sell us some tea, please, Mr. Nice Chinaman, sir. <laughs> but then when there's an imbalance of trade or if somebody owes you money, the gunboats arrive. And one reason why I think that people have a, a rosier view of um, Chinese um, economic engagement with the outside world is because China is still in the issuing loans phase. It's still in the... Will you kindly sell us your rare earth minerals, Africa, please, sir? Um, rather than, where's my money? Where's the goddamn money? But that'll come. I mean, to be clear, I'm, I'm not worried about nukes. Um, well, I am worried. I mean, kind of, I think there's a lot more worrying stuff, which were most, much, much closer in reality than nuclear weapons um i think kind of the nuclear stuff has been putin mentioning them in a speech to be like you know fucking america did hiroshima and nagasaki someone might be able to do that again in like a very vague terms and then kind of the west freaked out for a couple of weeks and invented stories about nuclear trains and blah 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 uh while there hasn't actually been any kind of movement in russia and whenever whenever they've been asked they've been said no of course not nuclear weapons in ukraine um, and obviously the point of 
mobilization was to again try to win the war conventionally which they're going to do in, in the coming weeks um what has been escalated in the past few weeks since ukraine did like a suicide bombing quite amazingly um on the crimean bridge has been russia finally making a significant effort to talk, target ukraine's electrical uh in power and general infrastructure and in the past couple of days ukraine has is taken serious efforts to kind of engage in a, in a revenge campaign of targeting the electrical infrastructure in the belograd oblast um so i think the the kind of the real horrors that we don't have to that will happen which we don't have to uh, invent some kind of scary nuclear war is that over this winter um kind of the facilities which keep ukrainians warm and the facilities which you know allow ukrainians to to do things in in hours which aren't night um are, are going to be heavily targeted um ukraine is going to be is, is now broadly connected to the european electrical network but the european electrical network and gas network is not going to have any spare facility over this winter um and i so, so i think that the real horrors we should be worrying about is kind of how terrible things are going to be for ukrainian people quick question first Quick question uh, for Stefan and uh, Kuba. Do you think NATO is going to be more involved? I uh, Just to pick up on what Stefan was saying, um, Stefan was saying, the um, we've gone from a Russian strategy of military attrition. Let's stack up our forces against their forces, grind them down, and now they've pivoted to um, strategic attrition. Let's we can bomb them into the Stone Age faster and better than they can do the same to us. Which is, from a human perspective, right? These are people who will be freezing to death. These are um, people who will be starving to death. The um, this is how you get outbreaks of um, cholera and other epidemic diseases, right? The um, if if um, you'll forgive the comparison, right? Russia may be trying to turn the, the parts of Ukraine that it doesn't control into Haiti, um, break well, down all well, the institutions. Well, actually, there's just been a big cholera outbreak in Syria, which is of course uh, in part, yeah, it's, it's a country which has been subjected to a long NATO, Russia and Turkey combination degradation strategy. Exactly. and. This is this is kind of what you do to populations that you don't care about, um, that you don't have a hope of winning over or governing. Um, you make their daily experiences um, hell, and you make it impossible for them to individually or collectively um, survive um, in a way that might threaten you. The you're right that a lot of the discussion of uh, nuclear weapons is um, very speculative at this point. But unfortunately, if strategic attrition doesn't work, if the counteroffensive doesn't work, then there may be a very brief window of time when we can discuss whether or not nuclear weapons will be used before uh, it's moot. Right. Yeah, I'm just saying, um, well, not not to worry until like spring. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> we'll reconvene. March. 
Yes, and comes late in Eastern Europe, right? Maybe even April. Well, again, uh, I'll ask the question again. Do you guys think NATO is going to be more involved? They're already they're already massively involved. They're providing um, the reason that Ukraine can fight the way it does is because um, the Ukrainians don't have spy satellites. They don't have that kind of signals intelligence. However, they get all of the signals intelligence they need from um, NATO. They don't have um, the same uh, capability for targeting and smart munitions. They can't build cruise missiles themselves, but they get it all from NATO. And with those weapons come uh, the trainers and the specialists to operate them. There's been a certain amount of skills transfer already to Ukrainian forces, but that's just so they can use weapons that NATO delivers to them. And the whole supply chain up to the Ukrainian border, that's guarded and protected by NATO through um, the member states, especially countries like Poland. Um, and that insulates a lot of the... Um, and this is a limitation to the idea of a strategic attrition campaign against Ukraine. Because even if you degrade uh, Ukrainian infrastructure, there's all of these other components of the supply chain that remain out of bounds unless you're going to expand geographically into, at the very least, Poland, um, maybe Romania, um, and that it might not be enough to just go after Ukraine for this strategy to work. If that's the case, well, then a different kind of nightmare escalation is also possible. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's much more the West can do. It's kind of doing all the stuff that you're allowed to do in this kind of weird international system that we have to aid kind of like a country in fighting another without technically or directly or legally whatever being involved such that, you know, the other states permitted to hit you back. Um, I think the one thing kind of the West can do is move more and more of its equipment, which is more and more advanced into Ukraine. It obviously has been noted recently, the West doesn't have that much equipment. 25% um, of France's self-propelled artillery is now in Ukraine. Um, you know, the Germans just sent some advanced anti-air, um, like two or three systems, but these were on order for Egypt, um, and they just didn't deliver them, and so they sent them to Ukraine. Um, and so really the West is running up on the limits of kind of what it can give. And also we should remember that even when they kind of give these systems over, I think that like HIMARS are very effective, and I'm sure this these anti-air systems that the Germans given them will be quite useful. But I think these German systems, it were two launchers, but 30 missiles. And that's a real problem in this war because there's kind of intensive shelling, which the West, even when it has like lots of nice systems, it can't keep up the ammunition for them. And because Russia has started to use suicide drones. I don't really know if the, the Ukrainians are doing this for propaganda or because they're actually worried about it, but Ukraine's been like sending MiGs to shoot down like tiny uh, suicide drones, Iranian suicide drones, and they're losing MiGs because they're like accidentally hitting into 
their drones, like they lost two or three mins in a week from that were on anti-drone operations. And this is like unsustainable. Uh, they were, they've been using buck systems and other relatively advanced anti-air. Um, and, you know, like this German system, you know, it's got to a point where, you know, you Russia is now like the, the underdog. It's the one that's sending, it's like a hundred thousand dollar, no, not a hundred thousand, like $10,000 drone to get shot, shot down by a half a million dollar uh, Ukrainian missile. And obviously there's no problem kind of with the US spending the money. Like Medvedev, the former Russian president was like, Americans, don't you feel shitty that the US has given 17, 17 billion to Ukrainian military? It's like, that's a fucking rounding error for the US. But there is an actual problem- To the, turning, to the US uh, military, right? Um, yeah. It might be the entire budget of uh, um, a major program that provides food to children, yeah. but a rounding error for the Pentagon. Yeah, and the thing is, the, the U.S.'s problem and NATO's problem is turning the money into military equipment, which is much harder. And ironically, the Russians, uh, because of their control of almost the entire of their, of their military supply chain domestically, uh, their dollar figures uh, underestimate how well they can turn out materiel. Um, the United States is over-financialized. Russia, comparatively, is under-financialized. But it's, it's absolutely an, an open question about um, how this will develop in the end game. I, and you don't think nuclear weapons are going to be used anytime soon? Not before March. <laughs> um, is that when it's in season? The well, you know, like the end of winter does um, strange things to the Slavic mind, right? Okay. Like the ice freezes not only outside but also in our hearts, and the Slavic man feels passion and can't really be held responsible for what they decide to do. When we were writing out the agenda for the live show, uh, I made sure we were going to talk about nuclear war in Russia and Ukraine. I'm totally kidding. It's not true. I'll not be talking about that. But yeah, like, I don't know, like, obviously Russia isn't the Soviet Union, um, but I really don't think Russia is going to do a first strike. Like, I think even if they were to use a nuclear weapon, they would do, like, like, there's just so many steps of escalation that they haven't gone through. That, like, we'll, I mean, obviously, I'm not saying it won't happen, but, like, we'll, we'll really see it coming. One reason we'll definitely see it coming is because Russia will really not want to use a nuclear weapon if it can uh, achieve what it would with a nuclear weapon by threatening to use a nuclear weapon. So we'll, we won't wake up one morning and Russia will have gone, just Kiev's gone, by the way, lol. <laughs> They'll threaten it for like a you long time. <laughs> but like, they haven't even put like a fucking missile to the presidential palace or anything yet. Like, there's so much shit they can try before using a fucking nuclear weapon and then getting like probably destroying the world or whatever, you know? It, it, a less risky move might actually be just to invade Lithuania. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the other thing that's happening, which we didn't mention, is kind of Belarus is mobilizing, maybe, or they're just kind of fucking around in some way. That's that's the other escalation, which is actually happening. And they're uh, accusing uh, NATO allies. Uh, Poland was on the list, but uh, I think the U.S., U.K. was Lithuania. 
mentioned, uh, but I think it was in that they're sending saboteurs and terrorists um, into I mean, like, Belarus. Westerners were like, isn't it fucking ridiculous that Belarus is accusing uh, Ukraine of ar- arming like Belarusian partisans? And it's like, you oh, you mean the like, thing that you tweeted the news for eight months? Like, of course, yeah. fucking Ukraine's arming Belarusians that hate the Belarusian government. Like, you've been constantly propagandizing us with these fucking people. Yes, and um, you can't get mad at them because they they just do this constantly. Yeah, and the only reason that NATO is doing this is because um, they hate Belarus's freedom. Of course, there's <laughs> never a rational explanation behind terrorism, but um, and also the uh, um, right, like I think that calling it terrorism is partly trolling the West, um, and. Uh, but there has been um, an intensification of just repression and security controls in Belarus. Uh, that may go along with the mobilization, because one of the first things that you do when you're mobilizing is you try to prevent um, the enemy from getting any details about uh, what it is you're mobilizing, when, how, who. Try to keep it secret as, as much as possible. Um and controlling the channels of information out of, uh, of your country is part of the way that wars are fought and won. Um, this may be that kind of preparatory move on the part of uh, Belarus, but Belarus is under tremendous risk if it uh, enters the war because that gives um, NATO potentially a uh, its own form of horizontal mobilization. It's like, we're not declaring war on Russia. This is just Belarus. Just Belarus. I mean, the thing is now, like, Belarus is getting to a position where its military is, like, super, super integrated into Russia. Like, there kind of satellite images have come out where there's, like, a, a Belarusian battalion which is meant to be 5,000 in strength, but because Belarus is like a, a shit country work and it's very small, it has about 2,000 soldiers of the equipment for 5,000. They've sent Russian conscripts in to basically four, like 3,000 Russians to join a Belarusian battalion of, of 2,000. So I think at this point it's becoming very unclear who is the Russian military and who is the Belarusian military. And this is probably exactly what the Belarusian military and government are trying to do based on worries of what uh, Kuba is saying. Because if, it, if Belarus kind of becomes indistinguishable from Russia, then NATO can't kind of escalate against Belarus without escalating against Russia. Uh-huh. Thank you guys for hanging out with us today. Did you want to ask something to MTM? Sorry. I just want to ask, uh, I guess, kind of a silly question. We were talking to our friends in Germany, 99 zu Eins, a few uh, weeks ago, and we were talking about the pipeline and uh, its uh, damage. Who do most people think destroyed the pipeline? I mean, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't completely clear to me. I didn't want to say 100% US, but what's happened in the past couple of days is that Sweden has got the results of an investigation uh, but said they're too top secret to share with 
Germany, Denmark, and anyone else in the West. And it's like, oh right, okay, it's because they worked out the Americans did it. <laughs> okay, yeah. Like, like what? Yeah. What? If if Russia yeah. did it, then obviously they would tell us. And so the fact yeah. that they haven't told us, like unless they did it, like yeah. it definitely wasn't the Russians. I love the fact that the Swedes have too much integrity to <laughs> lie in their internal reports, but are totally willing to just officially tell you they won't tell you. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, and also there was the Radek Sikorsky tweet. Um, Radek Sikorsky, he's a member of the European Parliament and one of the great Atlanticists. Um, like truly a, a a hero of um, getting the U.S. as deeply entrenched in Eastern Europe and um, getting Europe as deeply entrenched in NATO as possible. Um, shortly after the announcement of the explosion, uh, he tweeted out a picture of the destroyed pipeline um, with the caption, Thank you, America. Smiley face, smiley face. Um, so... It seems like it was the U.S. Well, I get the impression that a lot, a lot of people in the U.S. think that it was Russia. Well, that, yeah, a lot, of the a lot of stupid things. That's one of the things that I learned living in the U.S. <laughs> that was the other thing which made me think it wasn't Russia because it came on, it came on the news for a few days and then kind of disappeared. And if the Russians had like blown up, what is I guess, European property. And, you know, mm -hmm. people were initially talking like, Article 5, blah, blah, blah. If, kind of, this is, we were being propagandized into believing it was Russia, then there would be like a massive media campaign to do it, uh, if it was true or if it was not. But uh, and they haven't bothered. So presumably the Americans did it, but also they just wanted to blow it up and they don't want to use it as a false flag. Apparently the Americans, Americans are already profiting. It makes a lot of sense that the people probably. No, I, I did find out that actually one of the four pipelines is is still on. It's fine. It's yeah, Nord Stream One, right? No, Nord Stream Two. Nord Stream One is two pipelines built by the Soviets, by the way, uh, destroyed. Uh, Nord Nord Stream Two is two pipelines. One is destroyed. One is fine. And so hmm. Putin offered, like, we can give you some gas, Germany, but Germany's out. Germany. Whoever was protecting that second pipeline needs a promotion. <laughs> Were they yeah, just standing? It, 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 it wasn't the other way around. So you could claim it was superior as uh, well the engineering. Were they Were they protecting it like the the young lady at the McDonald's? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Not love on Deviantier. <laughs> I mean, like maybe the Navy SEALs like show up and there's um, somebody who like was very insistent on seeing some ID. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing is, the pipes are all kind of not adjacent to each other, but kind of on a massive geographic scale adjacent to each other. So the problem seems to be for, for the first time ever, the Americans didn't bring, a, bring, a, bring enough bomb. The, that's, that's funny. That, they, that's an action movie right there. Oh my God. I can't wait for the new Rambo. Like, are they going to uh, let us bring a big enough bomb this time? Speaking of the new Rambo, I think I found the... What is the duck sound? I'm going crazy. It's Tucson. I have a duck. 
Toussaint doesn't have a duck, but she has this squeaky chair. <laughs> no, it's a it's a it's a technical issue. I have gas. I have a duck. His name is Drake. <laughs> <laughs> we can't say because look, Toussaint in her apartment, she can't have pets, and she found a duck at uh, Central Park. I did. They're free, Wait. by the way. You can take them home. And uh, if if uh, the landlord finds out that Toussaint has a duck, then she might lose her place. So just Stefan has a llama. But what does the duck have to say? I guess we've been listening to the duck all day. Well, she yeah. has a little. I don't know if you saw it when we were in New York, Cuba. She's got a little uh, a little bowl, a little bowl, and the duck uh, kind of just swims around in it, and, uh, and she takes it for walks and stuff. It's 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 sweet. I, w- I but, wanted to. I found, yeah. But hold on, Cuba. I want you to see this. I know you've never seen this. I know for a fact you have never seen this. I know Purple Shirt Pascal hasn't seen this, and Emotional Support <laughs> Llama Stefan has never seen this. This is the person that protected the pipeline. This is the most badass individual you guys will ever see in your life. Okay. Uh, be, get ready. Get ready. Hey, that's Brian Cranston. Major. This rings. Is he really that good? There's no one who can tap in your whole damn army. Southeast Asia on his own. He's a whole field team six by himself. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that might be the, like, clip tape that Vietnam showed when they were accusing the U.S. of war crimes at the U.N. Like, look at this. He's just murdering our people. Wait, what's so funny about the movie? He, he, uh, it's, it starts off, he's on this, like, covert mission. And then somehow he ends up getting, like, knocked out from a blast. And he holds his breath underwater for, like, a day and a half. <laughs> and then he, like, wakes up. He wakes up in this Vietnamese village. And everyone speaks English. But they're trying to, like, help him come to. But so they're wearing this weird, like, ceremonial face paint. So it looks like he's at a black metal show. And he wakes up. And he gets scared. And he falls out of the hut. And when he falls out of the hut, all the villagers are around him, and they're like, American! American! And he's like, what's going on? And they're like, you're the American, and uh, we got this guy in the village, and he's bad, and we want you to kill him. I'm like, kill him! Kill him! And the, and the American dude's like, I can't kill this guy. I don't know anything about him. This is wrong. And, uh, and they're like, oh, you're not the American that's going to kill all these Russians for us. And the whole thing is these Vietnamese people just hate this Russian guy, and they ask this American dude to to kill him. And then there's a Vietnamese boy that he becomes friends with that's a little too old to be this naive and immature, probably like 13 or 14. And the American dude, the white dude that was running hella scared when the bombs were going off behind him, he's like, when you go to America, there's a place called Disneyland, and all the trees have soda pop and popcorn on them. <laughs> and the boy's like, that is grotesque. That sounds unnatural. Why can't the trees just be trees? Your country is an abomination. God hates you. Yeah. I'm like, you should watch that whole damn movie. I, I watched the whole damn movie. Yeah. Twice. Oh, wait, it's, isn't you reading off Wikipedia somewhere? You actually watched this movie <laughs> in the theater. <laughs> they, yeah. I, I found out they made a part two. I found out they made a part two, and I lost my goddamn. Why? 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 <laughs> I need to get that as a drop when Nancy Kerrigan got her knees beat. Why? <laughs> you know a crazy fact I just remembered today. Hmm. A British MP starved to death in prison forty years ago. For what? Uh, was he Irish? Yeah, it's he's, he's Bobby Sands. Mm. Oh. Bobby Sands elected MP while he was in hunger strike. That's right. That reminds 30 years me. ago? So yeah, imagine if that happened in the US. A congressman who was elected in prison starving to death. Yeah, I see a few problems with that. Um, <laughs> there's only yeah. the... Yeah, the um the parties in the US are in a lot of ways the the real enforcers of um the democratic guardrails that keep anything interesting from happening. Stefan, can I ask you? That reminds me, um, Liz Trust versus Lettuce. What is that about, really quickly? Oh, what's it about? Um, yeah. Well, lettuces have a shelf life of maybe 10 to 14 days, 
And it's become an open question in British politics if Liz Truss has a shelf life of greater or lesser than that amount. Uh, and so the Daily Star, uh, a newspaper of great ill repute, which I love checking at the news agents every morning, um, <laughs> has started a live stream uh, comparing the two to see which one has a short, shorter shelf life. But do you want an actual elaboration of why she's fucked? Sure. Yes. Let's hear, the, let's hear that part, too. Uh, well, it's, it's kind of quite incredible. Um, basically, the government announced a new budget, um, which is very right wing or whatever. Um, but that's not really the problem. The problem is that the international markets, the IMF and the World Bank, reacted very negatively to this budget. Uh, and then over a period of kind of uh, pressure on the, on the British state, and shorting of the British economy by various financial people, uh, they basically forced uh, the British government to abandon its economic plans uh, and to do other ones, which is kind of quite incredible. Um, it indicates that um, even after Brexit and so on, the political and financial independence of the UK is not somewhat like it's, it seems to be less than, than Bolivia has. Wow. Oh, wow. All that. I think very far, this is need to uphold his trust. <laughs> I just I wanted to interject if you guys don't mind. I think British politics currently deserves a whole show of its own. I think we should we do probably a Brexit show. show. Yeah, and we need to get Gene on for that, too. But yeah. Let's just have Gene, Stefan. Gene's uh, a fucking uh, Remainer. Uh, uh, what do you call Leonard? What do you call Leonard? Uh, MT? Oh, new, new Bertrand. <laughs> new Bertrand. <laughs> Get Leonard. I bet, I, bet Leonard voted. I, bet, I bet Leonard voted out. Yeah, let's, let's get them all on and then they can have a UK discussion on, on Saturday. That would be the perfect. There you go. There's next Saturday show. I don't even Accent care. Accent Bonanza. Cancel them. Whoever's on the show, cancel them. <laughs> cancel them. We're doing we're doing the UK well, show. Did you cancel someone today, or did we not have a guest? Uh, I think MT. We did. We. <laughs> they didn't confirm. That's all. Okay. Yeah. And I like do, this. Do you, do you remember one Saturday when I booked a guest and they didn't come, and then we yep. found out later they'd been hit by a car. <laughs> Fuck that guy! <laughs> oh no! They walked in front of the car to work, get out of doing the show. <laughs> I don't want to do that show. I also don't want to lie. <laughs> Speaking of the show, we are going to be doing a raffle for the live show, giving away tickets and merchandise. If you hold, let me read this. One thing. Well, do people have to do something, or do they just have to? Yeah, they have to do something. You think I'm just gonna fuck it? Pick someone at random. I can't. Body, Stefan. Supposed to be the smart one. No, I, I'm I'm acting dumb so that you can explain to our dumb chat exactly how everything works. Oh, oh wow. you're trying to play chess over here. Okay, you're saying I play checkers. <laughs> chat is wonderful. They I'm the only person which boasts in there during the show, so I am chat. 
If someone posts on Twitter or Instagram a relevant graphic or promo for the live show with the hashtag give them a revolution, you're giving away two free tickets. Oop, wrong, wrong button. Two free tickets. <laughs> and if you're unable to come to the show, some, some TIR merchandise. So thank you guys very much stefan thank you for joining us kuba tell summer we said thank you for letting us borrow you while you were on your honeymoon incubation period pascal robert thank you very much for joining us today mt yep thank you and please tell uh your pet duck that, uh, i appreciate it Thank you. I don't care what the naysayers say. I appreciate the duck. He's very sensitive. I know. Well, look, I understand. I duck. bet he's delicious. No. <laughs> Get no. some clever sauce on him. Oh, you guys are evil. He's a good rapper. <laughs> good enough. Uh, Tuesday's show, we will be, uh, Pascal will be talking with Kanye West. Ooh, child. <laughs> <laughs> Kanye West and Candace Owens. That would be the show that you know we officially sold out. With Kanye West and Candace Owens. I don't, I don't Owens, think right? Pascal would get a word in Edgewise. Oh my God. <laughs> Can you? I would. Oh, if you're real, hook this up. Kanye and Pascal having a sit down. Oh. Oh, man. Years mm. ago, when his mom was still alive, Harry Allen did an interview with his mother and just straight up asked her, why Why does your son act like this? Don't you feel <laughs> a little bit responsible? What is wrong with him? What's wrong with your boy? <laughs> what yeah. did she say in response? You know, he's his own man and blah, 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 and I raise him a certain way. I don't know. I love my son. So she was like, let yay be yay. Yeah, basically. I mean, if I had raised the richest rapper in the world and some person was like, doesn't he have a bad personality? I'd be like, fuck off, mate. That's Step off for the real answer. I would just fart. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's how much I care. On that note. On that note. Thank you, guys. Have a very good rest of your weekend we are out actually problematic and you suck and shut the fuck up and this is a problem and that's a problem and this is this and that and then Jordan Peterson comes along and goes no actually you're great and
You should have a government-provided life. 